I have always wished that my Spanish was better. Living in Southern California and going to Mexico a lot for surfing, weekend trips, stuff like that, it's just very handy. I took three years of it in high school, but I really didn't learn that much from the books. I basically only got really good at asking various types of people where the library is located, which turns out to be not a phrase you use that often when you're on vacation. Rosetta Stone is a much more organic and easy way to learn a new language because it really immerses you in that language. It's the most trusted language learning program available on desktop, and also it has an app. Rosetta Stone is the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Like I said, it's fast language acquisition because it really immerses you in the language. There's no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language. They also have speech recognition features like True Accent, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's also an amazing value. They offer a lifetime membership, which includes all 25 languages, which is perfect for any and all trips you might have in your future with various languages you might want to learn. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, other world listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com otherworld today. This episode is brought to you by Harry's. Harry sent me a razor starter kit recently to try, and I put it to use very quickly because I keep myself clean shaven. In fact, I pretty much shave every single day because I have lots of facial hair. It grows back very quickly, and it's also really thick, and it hurts a lot when I shave normally, with a bad razor at least. So I've been using Harry's razors for like a week now. They're very nice. It's a five-blade razor, and I have to say, it really does effortlessly shave through my normally very annoying facial hair. It doesn't hurt one bit, no tugging, anything like that. And it stayed sharp the entire time as well. I'm very impressed so far. It also has kind of a good weight to it. It's like heavier than normal. I don't know. It's like, it's just got a good weight to it. I really like that. I didn't know I liked it before, but now I know I like it. I also really liked the shaving cream just because it smells really good. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of other big brands. Harry's has a customizable delivery option for scheduled refills as low as $2, half of what you pay from other big brands. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com otherworld. That's harrys.com otherworld for a $3 trial set. Welcome to Otherworld. I'm your host, Jack Wagner. The story you're about to hear comes from a woman named Jamie. She has a rare heart condition, and as a result, she's had to go through multiple surgeries in her lifetime to insert and then maintain a pacemaker. She wrote to us about a time where something went terribly wrong during one of those surgeries, and she had what she refers to as a near-death experience. Consciousness remains one of the greatest mysteries of humanity. We still don't really know the nature of what it is, why we experience it, or how it even works. For that reason, I'm always a little amused when I hear people write off paranormal experiences as 
a trick of the subconscious or something along those lines. It's a pretty meaningless phrase when you think about it for more than a second, considering how little we know about consciousness itself. This theme is something that comes up a lot indirectly on the show. Does consciousness begin upon birth and end at death? Is it limited to our physical bodies or can it travel elsewhere? I don't have these answers, but I do think that there are clues in stories like the one you're about to hear from people who, for whatever reason, had their mind or body cease to function, yet their consciousness continued on. Jamie had an incredibly rare experience of entering and then returning from the white light we all hear about. And through this experience, she's gained some profound insight about life and death and acceptance that she's still trying to understand. This is episode 61. The title is Lost in the Fog, and you're listening to Otherworld. Is this Bobby? Yes, it is. At, at its core, the science you can't argue with. It's a like story about all of a sudden. up in the sky. It's almost frustrating that it's happening. I'm literally, I'm going to die. I'm like, just it's looking. limbs were just like wrong. It's just, just yeah. Everybody moves back into the light, even if it takes them a minute. My name is Jamie Lynn Steele, and I'm kind of like an artist. I also work in like film. I do a lot of art department, moving more into writing. I grew up in Toronto. I definitely was a very like hyperactive kid. I think I have a lot of really like good memories. Grew up in like a neighborhood with a lot of other kids. Played hockey and I danced. I was super active. And then around 14, a couple months into grade nine at high school, my energy just kind of shut off. And, you know, I would skip school to sleep. It was misdiagnosis depression. So I think there was sort of like a punitive attitude towards me, like slacking off, not having any motivation, not having any energy. And it was sort of only pursued as depression to the point of my parents looking into getting me admitted into like an inpatient clinic for basically like depressed little girls. And it was in that screening process that they found like the first time my kind of pulse was ever taken that my heartbeat was incredibly low so it was at about like 25 beats per minute when it was checked which kind of like just kick-started at that point it's like really dangerous so it was like immediately go to emergency and I went to there's a kids hospital in Toronto that I went to and I was there overnight basically getting all sorts of tests bouncing around between cardiologists where I was diagnosed with a condition called complete heart block So, like, complete heart block is an electrical system issue in my heart. Basically, they found I had large chunks of scar tissue in my heart that were covering my AV node, which is kind of the node where your brain sends the signal to make your heart beat. So I kind of immediately, I think within weeks, got my first pacemaker. And so with that first pacemaker, the battery kind of came Like, it had about an eight-year lifespan, so it was eight years later that in 2015, when they brought me in for the battery change and decided, like, 
in the same surgery, it would probably bring me a lot less discomfort to add a second lead that could kind of help balance my heartbeat and kind of make my whole heart in sync with the pacemaker. And so I had kind of two surgeries in May where I had the first one when they put the lead in, which was a very like smooth surgery. It was like the second time I had done it. It's very mirrored to my first experience of kind of, they give you either like ketamine or fentanyl when you're an adult with Ativan. So you're very drugged up and you're kind of falling in and out of sleep. But you're really, I'm really aware. Like I know I'm in surgery, but you kind of don't care. You're pretty like giggly. They strap you down to the table because you're awake. Basically, they don't give full anesthesia for heart surgeries because it messes with heart rhythm. So they do kind of want to keep you a little awake. And then that way they can kind of wake you up and make sure that you're still kind of doing well. So that's something that happens too a lot in the surgeries. Like the anesthesiologist will kind of like wake me up or like communicate to me and I'll communicate back. Very like sedated. It was always like a pretty good experience for me in terms of me feeling like pretty safe, me feeling pretty grounded, me like I would always get this huge burst of energy afterwards and feel like, oh my God, my like, you know, my heart just like got this amazing upgrade. And so I you do kind of a post-screening pretty quickly after you get the pacemaker where I'd go in after I was like discharged maybe like a week later and they would just check how I was responding to it. So after the surgery and kind of Early to mid-May, when I did that checkup, they found out that the lead had dislodged from my heart, the second lead they put in. So I was put into an emergency surgery right away to have that lead put back in, which is a bit of a riskier surgery because they kind of have to go in. like So they don't like cut open my ribs. They kind of go through. I have a little scar here. And they use like cameras through your kind of arteries, your veins, into your heart. And it was that second surgery where... I had this pretty fucking wild, sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but wild near-death experience. I guess at this point, this was going to be my third surgery. And so there was sort of a routine I was used to with my first two surgeries of like, you tend to go in really early in the morning um, and... I would usually be out within kind of two hours. I would get to kind of see my parents. Usually by the afternoon, I would feel pretty, like, great. Like, I would have that burst of energy from having this heart upgrade. I would be, like, eating. I'd be present. I would feel, like, rather, like, kind of a lot of the drugs had worn off. I almost always was released early because I responded so well. Like, I kind of bounced back immediately. And so going in to the third surgery, I definitely kind of went in with sort of that confidence, but being like, I've done this before, I did this earlier this month, I trust these surgeons. I went in, I did the whole pre-op. It was relatively smooth, you know, everything, you know, they were obviously concerned about the other lead, but I felt fine. I wasn't feeling any kind of like symptoms from it. And, you know, they wheel you into the room the operating room while you're still really conscious and then immediately when you get in they're kind of like all surround you they're like prepping you for surgery but your kind of point of contact is the anesthesiologist so my anesthesiologist was like setting up the IV starting to give me saline kind of talking to me about like oh like now we're going to start to give you like the drugs and so I remember kind of going in to that like lulled space that like kind of familiar familiarity of like being sedated and it like probably makes me like 
really goofy and I'm kind of like cracking jokes and being silly and making jokes with the doctors, which is also just sort of a way for me to like normalize it. And so I remember in the surgery, I started to kind of, you know, fall asleep, but I couldn't quite let go into it because I started to feel like insanely itchy. And so I kind of, you know, they have like a gas mask on top of your face to kind of administer like air or gas or whatever, because I know that they're giving me some of the drugs as well through the IV. But I I tried to ask her, like, can you scratch my face? Because again, I'm like strapped down and it's probably the least smart thing to do to start to move when they're starting to operate on you. So she took off my mask and she found it pretty funny. And she was kind of like scratching my face and I was like directing her being like, go to the right, like left up. And then she'd get a spot and then it would like move or it would like, and I'd be like, oh, to the right now or like, or down or like now my neck is itchy, like now my arm. And as she kind of was like going and moving and I can like, you know, really distinctly remember the moment when her face shifted from this kind of like, oh, this is kind of humorous and cute to this like really fearful haunted kind of look where she kind of stopped communicating with me and immediately turned to like the doctors and surgeons in the room and was like she's having some kind of a reaction like an allergic reaction and it didn't really like hit me that there was something really severe happening I think I was more just trying to like piece together like from their conversation like what exactly was going on until I started to lose my eyesight And I kind of had this like surge of panic. And it just was this sort of like blend from that moment where before I had really been strapped down and then immediately my eyesight came back and I sat up and was freaking out, basically being like, something's really wrong with my surgery. Like what's going on? Like why? Like, And I was all of a sudden in pre-op and there was a nurse there who was like, what are you talking about? Like your surgery hasn't even started yet. And I just remember like, being so in shock, you know, being so fucking confused about that, being like, I was just in, like, what are you talking about? Just sitting with that being kind of speechless, where I, like, the moment I kind of believed, like, oh, the surgery didn't happen yet, I sort of jump again. And now I'm in this space where I'm strapped, like, I can't move, I'm strapped down, I can't see and I couldn't breathe. And so now I sort of realize, or afterwards I got like information that I was on a breathing tube. I didn't know that at the time. And it wasn't until after I started kind of entering this nonlinear space where I was jumping to time, where I have sort of recordings and responses from medical staff that I was sort of having these intermittent like crying episodes or freakouts before the surgery happened, which I don't remember. I remember like, only having those episodes when I already knew something was really wrong, which is one of the details that really kind of messes with my head. In those kind of jumps where I'd return to that sort of surgery chaos, I remember trying to like gather enough information from just like, oh, at this point I couldn't move or see, but I could just hear and I couldn't like talk. So I remember them talking about, oh, like we couldn't, they don't know what drug is causing the reaction. So they kind of mentioned something about administering some kind of like blocker medication that inhibits me like absorbing any more of the meds since they don't know what is happening. You know, I jumped to a point before again where again I'm freaking out. As the jumps kind of became faster and faster, it felt like sort of like whiplash. I mean, there was like a jarring sensation in the sense of like changing environment. 
it was me, it was as if, like, just all of a sudden, like, it's like a flash and you're in a different space. Like, initially, they kind of just would, like, all of a sudden, I would, like, be reacting or, like, saying something to a nurse or someone. And then all of a sudden, I was in this new memory saying that same thing. It takes you a moment to realize that, like, all of a sudden, I'm in a different space. And I would come back and forth between being able to see and not see. It definitely became more and more jarring in that sense. Like, one of the worst kind of, like, jumping points of me going to these points but being like, am I dying? Is this an emergency? What's happening? Now all of a sudden I'm, like, all alone and I can't breathe. Or then again, I'm, like, in this, like, pre-op situation where I'm, like, freaking out and the nurses are trying to calm me down. And then I, like, end up in the middle of a surgery again, like, surrounded by surgeons or, like, feeling them. And for me, really, the worst memory was being unable to see, unable to speak, but feeling the surgery, which I've never felt before. Like, I've been awake when it's happened. There's, like, you know, really strong pain meds and sedatives that, like, I don't feel what they're doing at all. And I could feel his finger. I could feel him in my chest. I felt like a pop. I felt sort of like this really slicing sharp sensation. And I think that really, like, magnified these episodes of me freaking out and then all of a sudden being in a space where I'm not restricted, I can see, and I'm, like, screaming Something that I screamed then and I would have with flashbacks is that I could feel it because I like would try to scream that I'm trying to like let the surgeon know like something's wrong. I can feel you operating. And then I jump to this moment and scream it at a nurse. Like I can feel it. I can feel it. And she's like, feel what? And as those flashes ended up getting more and more like short and aggressive and kind of like this really visceral feeling of like whiplash um and I like didn't even have enough moment in any of the memories to kind of absorb what was happening or respond like it just would feel like flashing from all these kind of different situations or sensations or sounds and the kind of sensation of like being able to see to not see it just got like brighter and became like flashing light and really like abrasive sound like, it basically felt like a really quick-paced edit of chaos. So I remember sort of clenching my whole body because it was so overwhelming. And I, like, physically felt like I was being, like, thrown around. And I held that kind of clenching feeling for a really long time. And the flashing kind of became, like, blended together to just be this really bright light. And the sound kind of blended together to just be this kind of, like, screeching um noise like this really abrasive like ear piercing sound so it sort of felt like probably for at least like five or ten minutes that I was like clenching terrified where like it's like you know when light is so bright and your eyes are closed you, it's still just really bright light like shining through your eyes so it felt like you know this insane bright light this kind of like screeching sound and it yeah it was probably five or ten minutes that I realized like this has been a constant. Like, it's been constantly really bright and constantly this sound, like, nothing has changed recently. And so I kind of, like, unclenched my body and, like, built up the courage to open my eyes. And right away I was like, oh, when I open and I close my eyes, it looks the exact same. Like, it's this really, really bright light. My first instinct was to try to, like, focus, like, see if I could pick up anything. And I started to realize that there was, like, dimension, so to speak, to this light. I think, like, my eyes sort of adjusted to it. And I realized, like, it was 
super bright and like very white, but I started to recognize this iridescence in it. It sort of felt like it was slowly kind of flowing. So it definitely felt like, it. you know, I equated a lot to being like in a cloud on the plane where you can kind of see like some of it's a lot closer to you. Some of it looks like it's like farther in the distance, but sometimes it just like all blends together. Depth is really hard to kind of grasp. And I guess like when you're looking, there's a lot of things about like essentially having a body I think we take for granted or, you know, it's like our natural way of being. So I immediately kind of realized in my peripheral vision, I like couldn't see myself. And I remember like looking down and like doing this like kind of hand flipping motion. Like I could feel the sensation of having hands, like that feeling you have when you're like moving your body, but I couldn't see my hands at all. You know, so much of like your identity is you being in a body, like how it feels to kind of feel like air against your skin or whatever. I could feel that, but I couldn't find my body with my hands. And everything, when I looked down, it was just the same sort of like limitless kind of depth of iridescent space. Like looking up, it felt the same way, like looking around. And like my flight reaction was just to run. So I felt like I was running for quite a long time, maybe like thinking I could get out of the fog, but nothing changed. Like it was just this constant sort of conveyor belt or like space of fog. And I think I like changed directions and kind of like ran back the way I had come. I tried to like kind of turn left. Something I've always kind of thought about in hindsight is like why I never tried to go like up or down. If, you know, like there wasn't this sort of flat plane in the sense of like walking on the ground. But I think I was so, I was in such a panic and so attached to my sense of existence that I only really moved on that one kind of plane that I was used to. And so, I mean, like, there was a certain point of me running where I, like, realized it was kind of futile. And I, as if, like, still being really, like, anchored to the idea of having a body, I felt like I kind of, like, collapsed on the ground. And that's when I started, like, sobbing. And, you know, I think one of the most distinctive things of, like, when I was like, oh, I, like, I really think I'm dead. And this is where I am. And me also just feeling like this really overwhelming sense of loneliness, which, you know, when I had heard or read about near-death experiences, a lot of it was, oh, like grandma was there. There's this bright light and I felt really at peace, whereas I felt like so insanely alone. And, you know, mourning my body and mourning like the sensation of touch. And I just remember like profusely crying over just like the small fact that I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to feel rain on my skin. And I think I kept trying to justify it and being like, oh, maybe I'm not dead. Or like, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But I was just stuck in that space for such an extended period of time is what it felt like. Every time I kind of would try to come up with some rational explanation, I'd be like, no, I'm I'm here. Like I'm here and I have no body. Like there's no rational there's no way to like rationalize this right now. And I jostled back and forth between being like, you know, you have to accept your dead sooner than later because it's going to be more painful the more you like deny it. And there's no evidence to say you're not dead right now. Like you're by here by yourself with no body in this weird liminal cloud space. And yeah, I think like where for me this experience is so hard to like relate with 
anyone or anything or like something that makes it really unbelievable that I would like this would be just like adrenaline and a sort of like your brain releasing DMT is I was in that space for what felt like weeks. It felt like it was almost forever. And I would cycle through, you know, going through these past memories that felt really sort of real. And a lot of it was sort of fueled by regret or by like grief of me being like, you know, remembering good memories with my parents or my friends or my pet or going back to like childhood birthday parties. Me just being so heartbroken about it or like me really combing through these memories and like shaming myself and feeling like I had I hadn't taken advantage of the life I had and here I was going to spend the rest of eternity in this very lonely foggy space and if I had known this was like the end for me I would have done things differently and so I think I really approached a lot of it with shame going in and there was a certain point where I started to kind of have these fantasies of waking up of living I remember like leading it was this weird thing too like I could hear my voice it was like all I really had was my voice my like inner voice but I could hear it like I was talking but I wasn't like moving my mouth it was like thinking and it was all of a sudden in the space around me I could hear it and so you know I remember just like pleading and feeling like I would do anything to live um which is something you know I think going into it before I had sort of a little bit more black and white morals but at that point, you know, if some entity or whatever or like voice responded, like, sure, like you can live, but you have to kill someone at that moment. It was like I was in so much grief and pain that I was like, whatever it takes for me to like be able to go back to that and not be stuck in this space forever, like I will do anything, which has definitely shaped the way I perceive sort of my morals now with other people. I think I have a lot more compassion in general, even for people I don't agree with. Because I was like met with this circumstance about being like, oh, like really to survive, I would have done a lot of things that I had deemed immoral before. And I started to kind of go through these fantasies about being like, well, if I got a chance to live, like this is how I would take full advantage. And what are the things I would love to do and how would it, you know, and they would become more and more visceral and feel longer. And like, you know, for example, there was like one where I like woke up in the hospital and my family was there and I like got to go home early and I like, you know, rearranged my room and, you know, in it too, I remember like going to a coffee shop and like going to go get a coffee. And then the person in front of me online turned around and it was me and, like, I told myself, like, that version of me was, like, you have to go back. This isn't real. And I remember, like, begging myself, like, no, please, no. Like, let me let me stay. Like, I don't want to go back. And they're, like, no, this isn't real. You have to go back. And then I would be back in the fog. And almost each time it was happening, I would, it, it would be way more painful that I wasn't living. Like, I was believing the sort of illusion that I was alive. And every time I was kind of thrown back into that space... I was, like, more and more upset. And so I was trying to, like, even when I'd start to kind of slip into one of these fantasies, I would try to fight it because I was like, it's going to be so painful when you remember it's not real. I would really try to fight falling into those memories or those scenarios where I had lived on because I was so scared about getting emotionally attached to them or, like, the heartbreak of finding out they weren't real. 
at this point, there was so much I was jumping between the grief of all the things I was losing, of me feeling like at that point when I was in there that I was being punished. I was like, why is there like no dead family members? Why is there no sense of peace? Like I really did believe I was in hell and that this like obscene sense of isolation with like no sensory kind of like that. And all you have is your inner critic essentially. Like to me, I was like, oh, this is hell. Like I had done something that pissed off the powers that be and I'm like in timeout, like essentially like forever timeout. I can't really remember exactly like what I was thinking or where I was when I felt this tug like against like kind of my hand. And at that point, I think I had stopped kind of feeling or like really like attaching to this like physical body. I was just sort of my inner voice you know, whatever I was, like, kind of thinking about or doing before, like, did not matter at all. I was, like, that tug is some kind of beacon of hope. Like, there, I can feel my skin. And it, like, you know, it's a little, like, pang. I don't know if you ever had an IV, but when it kind of jostles, it, like, is a little pang of pain. And, like, I was, like, I feel pain. Like, that's incredible. It felt like I was, like, gripping through that and, like, almost, like, pulling myself into, like, it felt really pushing against a current. Like, it wasn't, like, an easy problem. Like, I felt like I put everything in me to pull towards that sensation. And I, like, reached out, like, I immediately reached out and, like, grabbed a hand that was, like, touching my IV. And as soon as I touched her skin, the nurse's skin, I could hear the computer, like, the kind of medical stuff beeping. You know, I, like, felt the sensation of having, like, a blanket on my skin. Like, all of it, like, all of a sudden, I was in that space. And my vision was still really, really foggy. Like, I could feel everything and hear stuff, but it was sort of still fading out of that fog. She was almost, like, silhouetted and, like, glowing. And she had ringlets. And she was just, like, so ethereal. And immediately, I was like, and my dad. And she, like, laughed and was like, no, honey, like, came kind of close. But, you know, you made it. Like, you're okay. And I tried to follow up another question and she was like, don't talk. You had a breathing tube in. It's going to be really hard for you to talk. So you need to just rest your throat. Um, And in that process too, she was like, said her name. She's like, I'm going to be your nurse in here. Like my name is Jamie. And so immediately I was like, oh no, like this is a made up scenario or like a dream. Like this angelic nurse with the same name as me. Like it's not, like there's no way that this is real life. Okay, we have to go to a quick break, but we'll be right back. I used to be really bad at keeping track of my finances. A very stupid part of me believed that if I just don't look at my bank accounts and my credit card statements, the money will all still be there, even if I spent it on stupid stuff that month. Well, that's not how it works. I learned the hard way. It's quite the opposite. Usually when I finally did look, I'd notice that there was some subscription I'd been paying for that I forgot to cancel or I got overcharged for something and it's too late to fix. But now I use Rocket Money to keep track of all of that for me so I don't have to worry. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so you could grow your savings. Rocket Money finds all of your bills and subscriptions for you, lays them out, and gives you the option to cancel them automatically or 
it can negotiate a lower price for you. I recently tested this out on my internet bill and they were able to negotiate a lower price for me. I saved like $300 doing this. If you're like me and you get scared checking your accounts, Rocket Money might be your savior. It's nice having everything in one place and under control. I promise you're going to be very happy once you finally do it. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash otherworld. That's rocketmoney.com slash otherworld. Hey, Otherworld listeners. I'm excited to tell you about a show that I love and I think you're going to love as well. It's called Sophia with an F, starring Sophia Franklin. This show is about as different from Otherworld as a show could possibly be, which is why I think many people were very, very shocked when I got invited on as a guest around Halloween. It was really the crossover that nobody expected. I'll never forget the day my episode came out and every single one of my college-age cousins texted me all at the same time. Very confused, but also very excited. It was nice to hear from all of them, though, and uh, finally get some respect. I had a great time on the show. Sophia is really down-to-earth, which is why I think her interviews are so good. We talked about Otherworld, the paranormal, getting into this whole thing unexpectedly, as I did, and a lot of other stuff that I think normally does not get discussed on Sophia with an F. Normally in the show, Sophia Franklin goes deep on sex, life, mental health, relationships, and everything in between. You could get Sophia all to yourself every Monday for solo mini-episodes and every Thursday with her ride-or-die best friends, experts, and some famous guests on a host of other topics, topics that are not safe for the dinner table, from foursomes and sugar daddies to wild sexcapades and tips for keeping things fresh in the bedroom. It's raw and laugh-out-loud funny, no borders and no filters. My personal favorite is the episode with Walk a Flock of Flame, if you want somewhere to start. Listen to and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever feel like you just need to get something off your chest? Contrary to the belief of, I think, every single man in my family lineage dating back to the hunter-gatherer period, bottling things up does not work. When you push those things down, it begins to build up and negatively affects you. And of course, the stuff you bottle up always finds a way to come out eventually, usually not in a very good way. Therapy is a place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. There's a reason people say it's like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders afterwards. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Otherworld today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Otherworld. Springtime is here. I've recently had all of my windows open, letting in the breeze, the smell of fresh flowers blooming all over my neighborhood. This is what a house should smell like. It should not smell like your cat's litter box. Thankfully, Pretty Litter makes that very easy. Nothing beats Pretty Litter's ability to instantly trap odor. It's ultra-absorbent, lightweight, low dust, and one six-pound bag works for up to a month. It also gives me peace of mind knowing Pretty Litter's crystals change color to indicate early signs of potential illness in my cat, like urinary tract infections, kidney issues, and more. This is especially useful now that my cat is hanging out Constantly by our screen door, getting visitations from coyotes, raccoons, squirrels, other cats, who knows what else. So it's very helpful knowing that if he picks up anything weird from them, I'll notice right away in his litter. When I first got my cat Merlin, 
I tried using the cheap cat litter that comes in those huge, giant bags from the pet store. That stuff is awful. Some of it smells worse than the smells it's supposed to be covering up. It does not have to be like that. There's a better way to live. There's no reason for your house to smell like your cat's litter box. If your house smells like a cat's litter box, that's on you. That's not on your cat. Pretty Litter is amazing. You should give it a try. Go to prettylitter.com slash otherworld to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. That's prettylitter.com slash otherworld to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And then, like, after that, things were pretty blurry. I don't know, like, what time that happened. I did reach out to my parents to kind of ask them what they remember. And they do remember, like, visiting me sort of in the, like, ICU post-off operating room. They said I was really, really out of it. I was, like, really swollen. I have, like, no memory of seeing them in that space. I don't remember seeing them until I was moved to my, like, room later in the evening. And I think there was this emotionlessness. I didn't trust that they were real. I knew in the sense of, like, scanning through my memories, I'm like, oh, yeah, those are my parents. That's what my parents look like. This is their backstory. But I had no real emotional connection to them. And I think I kept a lack of emotional connection to anything going on in my life. Or these like at least three weeks of me not believing it was real I think like every time something would be like a bit of a synchronicity or whatever I'd be like oh I'm like I'm clearly making this up and like sooner rather than later like I'm gonna show up in this space and tell myself I have to go back or like whatever so I really kept a really strong guard up in the next few weeks following like going home at that point it was in this like kind of you know, beginning of summer and I was in university. So I had an apartment in Montreal, but this was here and I was staying at my mom's house. And I think like I was supposed to kind of stay for the summer and I felt like such an imposter. Like I felt like I had to like, I felt enough emotion from my parents or like my friends that I like felt like I had to pretend to care. I didn't want to like hurt their feelings, but it felt like such an exhausting thing to do and I felt really scared that like they were like someone's gonna be like wait you're not Jamie like you're not reacting like Jamie you're not like you're some like I had this weird fear that I was not Jamie but I got stuck in her body like with all of her memories and that someone was gonna catch on and be like you're an imposter and so I ended up going back to Montreal within like in that kind of like three-week mark to kind of have my own space. Like, most of my friends in Montreal were, like, away from the summer. It's a really big, you know, university city, so most of the people who go to school there aren't from Montreal. So I, like, spent a lot of time alone that summer, kind of looking for all these clues that it was a dream, but there were enough kind of 
unforeseeable conflicts or annoyances or like locking myself out of my apartment and like Wi-Fi turning down or like, you know, not working or these little things that like those were sort of what I had kept trying to like justify as being like, I, why would I make this up? Or like why, you know, if this wasn't real, these are such like strange little hindrances that come with life that kind of helped me build a little more trust that I was actually out of that space. It's almost like the time after for at least even like a few months almost feel more like a dream with like detachment than being in that space. Like that space is such a very significant traumatic memory to me. There's so many details about like me even trying to like almost meditate in that space and calm myself down and breathing through things and doing like body scans or doing like check-ins and trying to like define the space within me. Like there was so much time I was in there trying to grapple with being like, there's nothing else. Whereas like, yeah, for like the next few months, I mean, I think there was just this profound fear but I was dealing with a lot of like opposites at the same time like I was like if this is real and I'm here like I don't really think I'm Jamie certain things too like I couldn't laugh like I didn't find anything funny and I'm like a pretty comical like person usually or like before and so I remember like even like being in a group of people and everyone's laughing and I'm like oh ha, ha. like I'm fake laughing because I'm like oh I'm supposed to laugh now but it felt like there was all these little ways I had to like relearn how to be human. It was conscious work to reattach to things, to get back into any hobbies. So I kind of, in a way, got this opportunity to kind of like leave behind what I didn't think served me moving forward and like pick up kind of new things. But I guess the det detachment was, I like, I just didn't even know how to wrap my head around what happened and me not having any answers. And, you know, it wasn't until I went to school and I did start to have these really severe flashbacks or these really big fears. Like, yeah, this thing would happen, like in the subway, like I'd see like a clown and immediately I would be like, oh my God, like that me, like that's so strange, a fully dressed clown, like I'm making this up. And I would like have like a public breakdown of starting to freak out. And it was just that sense of me being like, me so embarrassed in public or around people because I didn't know how to react. And I could pick up that people started to be like, would have like weird reactions to what I'd say or like pick up, like I could just sense like an uncomfortability around me and me just feeling like I also in the sense of me, like not me trying to figure out what to pick up and what was important and me really trying to like be like, oh, wow, I really regretted a lot of my choices before, which almost gave me a sense of decision paralysis afterwards because I was like, oh my God, what if I'm going to regret this choice? Like, what if I'm going to, like, I'm going to end up in that space again and I'm going to say I, like, fucked up this opportunity to live. And so it almost made things worse and my suffering worse. I mean, like, constantly overthinking every little detail that I decided to talk, like, the school had to kind of set up with, like, social workers that you could drop in and kind of a walk-in basis. And when I kind of just started to, like, verbally regurgitate, and I think, it was so difficult for me to talk about. So it was just like chaotic and nonlinear. And she interrupted me pretty quickly, like within probably five to 10 minutes. And she was like, this is outside my wheelhouse. Like this sounds like severe trauma. We're going to like recommend you to, through the medical clinic at the school, to try and get you a psychiatrist who specializes in this. 
And so that sort of kickstarted this journey that like with the psychiatrist who I think I was just really lucky to find him. Like when I tried to have that conversation within the medical world, I was really shut down. And even still, they really play down what happened. It's really hard to get a clear answer of like what had happened in that surgery. And so it was like the first time I had like some kind of medical staff who like was like, I hear you. This is obviously really real to you. It's causing you so much distress and kind of like helped me build anchors in my life for me to kind of make the effort. I think something that was really painful for me to hear, even years after, is when I would kind of mention like, oh, I had this near-death experience. I had this really like life-threatening experience in surgery. A response people say a lot is like, oh, you must really appreciate life now. And I struggled so much with that. In that space, I had regretted how I hadn't been present or really grateful for the life I had. But then I like kept struggling with that after where I was so worried that whatever I would do, I would somehow look back on it and regret it. So, I mean, it's been like, what, like almost like eight years, it's been eight years now that I am actually kind of getting to that place. But it's not like this thing that just clicks. Like all of a sudden you wake up from something like so traumatic or thinking you're dead and you're like, oh, thank God I'm alive. I think it just like set this path for me to actually do all that work. Some of the things too were like going in, I was pretty passionate of a person. I did think a little black and white. I was like, this is right, this is wrong. And then all of a sudden, like I don't, I don't necessarily remember like consciously coming to these philosophies in that space or in that experience. But I did now have these philosophies that I had never really had before that I hadn't like learned or read that almost like contradicted a lot of my community, what I believed in before. I feel like now I'm in a place where I can kind of explore them with people around me and I have that room to kind of explore it because it's not like I'm like, oh, this is right or this is wrong. It's like, I just have all of these sort of philosophies in my head that like are hard to put into words and I'm trying to figure them out, even though they kind of sound, and like to some people, sometimes they're even like kind of offensive. Like people have gotten really upset when I've tried to express them. I mean, like something I got right away was that there's no such thing as natural versus unnatural. This is this weird illusion that we divide things, but that like everything is natural, even if we don't understand it. Even if it's man-made, we're part of nature. It's sort of like everything is supposed to be. And like another one too was that like everyone deserves compassion, like everyone. And this is kind of one where people have gotten offended because people will kind of pull up a really terrible person in history or a terrible person right now or like, you know, and be like, you think this person deserves compassion? And I'm like, I don't really know how to explain it. But yeah, like that was the messaging I got is that compassion is sort of like the right to water, right? Like maybe like, you know, everyone deserves to drink. I don't know, there's a saying that I really love now that's like, you deserve to eat or everyone deserves to eat, just not at my table. And sort of the messaging I got is like, like if you don't have a lot of compassion to share, just like if you don't have a lot of water, you kind of have to reserve it for yourself. But if you have more than you need, there shouldn't be a scale or a hierarchy based on like anything on who gets compassion. So those are just things that kind of went against how I lived my life before. Do you know what I mean? I like was pretty passionate or angry about certain behavior or whatever. 
think even before I really struggled with the idea of like being dependent on a machine and like how natural I was. Whereas like a lot of that messaging was almost just to let go. Like you also, this is really strong messaging that I am really limited by the human perspective on the truth, like the ultimate kind of truth. Like I'll never know even the truth about what happened to me, but like just like the truth that like part of it like was a little bit of this like humbling, like sit down and just enjoy the ride because like you don't really see reality. You see it through a human lens and through a human brain. Which again, I was so passionate about like my kind of like beliefs or perspectives before I went into that. And so I think that's something I really carry now where there's a certain sense of like humbleness into how I experience the world or interact with people that I constantly am like, I don't know everything. Like I don't have all the information. I don't have like the resources or the like sensory kind of, you know, tools to be able to get the big picture. Like I kind of just have to like trust in something bigger than me, that everything is what it's supposed to be and kind of go from there. I am kind of constantly jumping between like different theories of understanding like what that foggy space was. I think like at the time when I was there or recently after, I thought it was a form of punishment, which I don't necessarily believe anymore. Yeah, for a long time, I thought I was being punished in some way by like yeah some powers that be I've wanted to believe I don't know like I don't know what's scarier that if that's a real place or if my mind is capable of doing that like it's almost scarier to me that like if that's a state of mind that that's possible inside of me and it was so cruel in that sense like if I was capable of basically imprisoning myself for weeks in that space of like nothing but fog it just as far as I know myself, that just doesn't make any sense. Like the parts of me being in that space and imagining like a future scenario, like, you know, I'm someone who does like to run through like the possibilities or like I love daydreaming. Like, so that part of me feels like me, but the foggy place, like I just don't, I can't rationalize why I would do that or why it would feel so real or why it would feel so long. I think like more recently, like what I want to believe is that I was in some liminal space and that maybe the fog represented this, like, you know, in terms of, like, fog, like, obscures and makes things, like, maybe I didn't have the capacity or I wasn't ready to see. And perhaps the fog was some sort of protective measure while I was in lim the liminal space because my brain probably couldn't handle the truth. And that's kind of what I want to believe. But I mean, I feel like my theories kind of, they change all the time. I'm not necessarily like attached to anyone. There's maybe like a little bit of that like selfishness or whatever. Like I didn't know like if you guys maybe didn't turn like a submission into a story, but like you had gotten like a near-death experiences that might have had some kind of theme. Like I've definitely dealt with like traumatic situations since or some before. I almost like see them as like kind of like real world or this world or like physical world things where you can relate to other people with them. Whereas like I've have not been able to relate to anyone about this. Like I've sort of like gone through those periods. Like, you know, I had like, I met someone who had had anaphylactic shock and I was like, oh, maybe it's a weird response, you know, and kind of started telling my story and they were like, whoa, no, that's not my experience. 
I mean, I think more than anything, like what I'm seeking for myself. So what would be like amazing to extend for someone else is someone who had like a similar experience and they're like, oh, I'm not insane, you know, or being like, oh, wow, that's a correlation or like maybe like helps like a puzzle piece for someone in terms of something they they can't process. Part of me feels like almost my main theme in life, my main goal is to learn accepting the circumstances around me so that when I'm there, if I'm there again, I'm more prepared and I'm more prepared to kind of accept it as opposed to fight it and find it so dark and traumatizing. I think like because as you know, I want to believe I'm alive again, like I, I feel like it's, you know, been eight years and I've lived a life that it's helped me kind of be like, maybe that wasn't hell. Like maybe that was that, maybe that was like this almost like waiting room. And so I'm really scared of that space, but maybe I'm a little more optimistic that there's something after that is much better than that. Maybe that's like something you have to go through to kind of purge all of this like identity and ego and stuff before you can move on. And like maybe the reason I was stuck in that space is because I hadn't like finished that process yet. I have accepted that I might never get the answer in life. Like part of me thinks that like maybe I'll only get an answer of what really happened when I die again. And I have to kind of be okay with that. Like I kind of have to trust the larger powers at work and just try to be present and enjoy the rain on my skin. All right. Thank you so much to Jamie for telling us that story. I'm going to be honest. Hearing this one kind of messed me up for a day or two because it really opened up so many questions for me. I also just felt terrible hearing what she went through and then having people brush it off, including a lot of people in the medical field who are meant to be helping her. I know that they're not psychiatrists, but still sounds very difficult you know people quickly write off paranormal experiences by saying things like oh they imagined it for me this story highlights how absurd and dismissive that is sometimes because in Jamie's case when you experience weeks of time so vividly that when you come back to the quote unquote real world and you genuinely doubt which version is reality and that continues for years until you have to seek therapy to get through it at that point what is the difference you know if that's imagination what is the difference especially when what we're talking about is consciousness the very nature of our day to day experience what does that even mean What is the difference? These themes are things that I cannot wait to continue exploring on Otherworld. I've already begun working on some more episodes related to NDEs and consciousness, and hopefully we'll be getting even more stories like this. Perhaps we'll even find somebody with a similar one to Jamie so that she'll finally have somebody to talk to about it. This has been episode 61. The title is Lost in the Fog, and you've been listening to Otherworld. Otherworld is executive produced and hosted by myself, Jack Wagner. Our theme song is by Cobra Man. The soundtrack of this episode is by Juice Jackal. This episode was edited by Theo Krantz, engineered by Theo Schaefer, 
and produced by Nikki Kate Delgado. Our artwork is by Cul-de-Sac Studios. Please show us your support by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, and telling your friends about the show. If you want to hear bonus episodes of Otherworld, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash otherworld. Our social media is at otherworldpod. It's our handle on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Thank you to the team at Odyssey. J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese-Dennis, Rob Morandi, Eric Donnelly, Matt Casey, Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Follow and listen to Otherworld Now for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, if you or somebody you know has experienced something paranormal, supernatural, or unexplained, you can send us your story at storiesatotherworldpod.com. 